This is Examine Sport, a podcast of the Sports Ethicist. I am your host, Sean Klein. Each episode of Examine Sport focuses on an argument or concept in the philosophy of sport literature. We will look at classic, discipline-defining articles, exciting, newly published works, and dig deep for important but not as well-known papers. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all the shows, along with links and related information, at sportsethicist.com. In this episode, we turn our attention to the concept of play. Clearly, not all play is sport, and not all sport is play. Yet the two concepts and the activities they subsume are importantly related. Examining one yields insight for the other. In his 1977 paper, Words on Play, Bernard Suits attempts to provide a definition of play. Similar to his attempts to define game, Suits' account has been deeply influential in the literature philosophy of sport. His account of play, though, is the subject of much more criticism than his definition of game. Later episodes will explore some of these criticisms, but here the focus is primarily on Suits' definition. Like his work on games, Suits works his way towards the definition as he considers different kinds of examples and proposals. His initial step is to ask why we should even bother to define play. His response is that play is overused. Quote, there is little now that someone or other has not called play. Definitions limit and restrict, and play is in need of some conceptual boundaries or else it becomes so overly broad that it doesn't really mean anything anymore. By some accounts of play, both a cat chasing its tail and Aristotle's contemplation of the unmoved mover, or God, are kinds of play. These activities of the cat and Aristotle just don't seem like they should be under the same heading. So to be able to pick out the activities that are play and to differentiate those activities from other kinds of activities, we need the help of a definition. To start the inquiry, Suits asks, what do the cat and Aristotle have in common? Well, they are both autotelic activities. Activities that are ends in themselves. Now, autotelic comes from ancient Greek for the roots auto, uh, which means self, and telos, meaning end. Something is autotelic when the end or purpose of the activity is itself, not something beyond it or external to it. So, to the cat chasing its tail, we might ask, why are you doing that? What is it good for? And the cat might respond, it isn't good for anything. It's good in itself. I chase the tail to chase the tail and nothing more. In the same way, we might ask Aristotle, what is the good of contemplating God? And we'd get the same answer. We don't do it for anything else. It's good in itself. Now, it's important to point out that being an end in itself and being good in itself might not be equivalent in the way that suits uh, seems to assume them to be. But that's really a question to address for another time. So cats chasing tails and Aristotle contemplating God are both autotelic activities. But suits says this doesn't mean that they're both play. Not all autotelic activities are play. Right? He denies that, that claim, that all autotelic activities are play. 
And we can see this, he says, because we already call what Aristotle is doing by something else. We can call it religious experience, or we can call it contemplation. We don't need to call it play. And we wouldn't want to call the cat chasing its tail a religious experience. So there are, seemingly, autotelic activities that do not count as play. Meanwhile, though, he does affirm that all play is autotelic, right? So he denies that all autotelic activities are play, but he affirms, he agrees with the idea that all play is autotelic, that being autotelic is a necessary condition of play. In other words, autotelic is play's genus, but what is the differentia? What makes it different from other kinds of autotelic activities? Now, Suits says it's going to have something to do with seriousness. But before he explains what he means by that, he shifts into a discussion of games, namely examining the difference between playing and playing a game. Suits argues that while often playing and game playing are the same thing, they don't have to be. There is no logical relation between the two merely because the term play shows up in both. Now he points to other usages like playing the violin, where play means perform, or playing pinball, where play means to operate. And he says playing a game might just mean to participate in the game without any need to be an instance of genuine play. Now maybe Suits is too quick to dismiss these examples, but he's right that the mere existence of the ordinary language term game playing doesn't prove that there's a logical relation between playing and game playing. So Suits is arguing that, quote, one cannot conclude that because X is an instance of playing, that X is therefore an instance of game playing. And also that one cannot conclude that because Y is an instance of game playing, that it is therefore an instance of playing. Right? So in other words, game playing and playing are two logically distinct activities. They overlap, uh, but they're not always the same. Now, the prime example that Suits uses in support of his view uh, is the case of professional athletes. They are playing games, to be sure, but it's a lot less clear that they're playing. They seem to be working. And so he contrasts games as work with what happens when the professional goes home and plays with his or her children. Hide-and-seek with the kids is play. Being paid to play football is work. Now, whether he's right about professionals here is, is again, a topic for, for another episode, but it's something to think about. Suits continues his discussion of the logical independence of play and games with an analogy to the relationship between lightness, in terms of the shade of a color, and blue, the name of a particular color. Now he tells us, some blues are light, some light-colored things are blue. But from this, it doesn't logically follow that all blues are light, or that all light-colored things are blue. This is easy to see. There are light-colored red things, and there are dark-colored blue things. Now, another interesting aspect of the concepts of light and blue is that light has an inherent opposite, dark. Blue doesn't. The traditional color wheel might suggest orange as its opposite, but that's not really the way we think about colors. We can't infer from blue that orange is its opposite without knowing about the traditional color wheel. Indeed, I had to go look that up. I didn't just couldn't know that just by knowing the color blue. Whereas, if we understand the concept of light, we seem to be able to get right to the concept of dark. And that's what he means by sort of these inherent opposites. So you can see where Suits is going here. 
light to blue is the same as play to game. And like light and blue, there is some play that is game playing and there is some game playing that is playing. But nothing logically requires that from this that all play is game playing or all game playing is play, right, that those have to follow. There are lots of examples, lots of examples of play that don't involve games. Playing with a matchbox car, right, a Hot Wheels car, something like that, right? Zooming it around the carpet, right? There's no, it's not a game. You're playing, but it's not a game. There are no rules. There's no goals involved, right? Uh, and moreover, if one is game playing for work, like a professional athlete, or using uh, games in some way to hack into a computer uh, to, uh, you know, to to get you know uh, other people's uh, identification information or think of something like the Hunger Games right these are all examples where uh, it's fairly clear that you're not in most of them that you're not playing uh, and yet you're participating in a game uh, and so it does seem that these are logically distinct now similarly game and blue are similar kinds of concepts in that like blue game doesn't appear to have an inherent opposite it's really an har a hard notion. It's not even clear what that would mean. It does remind me of the Seinfeld episode uh, where they discuss what the opposite of a tuna fish sandwich is. Is it a salmon sandwich or is it a chicken salad sandwich, right? Tuna fish sandwiches don't have an opposite game. Blue, they don't have opposites. But play, like light, seems to have an inherent opposite. Right, Suits says it is, quote, a, kind, a certain kind of seriousness. Now, when we say, so for example, when we say something is light, we imply instead of dark. Right? We can say the blue shirt is light, can be understood as the blue shirt is not dark. When we say play with, we imply instead of taking it seriously. So to play with something is the opposite of treating it seriously. He's playing with his mashed potatoes, can be understood as he's not taking his mealtime seriously. Now, naturally, the next question should be is, what does it mean to take something seriously? Now, Suits doesn't answer this directly. He turns to Schopenhauer's idea that the play of animals consists in the discharge of superfluous energy. Now, this doesn't quite translate to humans. It's not clear that it really explains animal play either. That's, uh, again, something for another story. But from this, Suits pulls the kernel of his idea about seriousness. If play is the discharge of superfluous energy, what is the sense of superfluous? It must, says Suits, mean energy beyond what is needed for the animal's effort at surviving. Now, the main purpose or focus of the animal is about surviving, to meet its various needs. If its needs are all in some sense reasonably met, then the energy it has left can be redirected towards other things, things not connected to meeting its survival and life needs. Now the inherent opposites begin to take shape, that there are kinds of activities directed primarily at, primarily at meeting these needs, the primarily instrumental activities, and then the kinds of activities that are not instrumental. They are not about meeting these important needs. In other words, work and play. Quote, broadly speaking then, play here appears to be contrasted with work or in general, with the performance of primarily instrumental activities. Now, but for several reasons, superfluous energy is too narrow for humans. The structure of human lives just doesn't fit it well. So Suits suggests instead we think more broadly in terms of resources. Right? Now, with this move, we see play is the shift of our resources normally used for meeting our various needs towards activities not geared towards living. 
We take the resources meant for engaging in the serious important activity of satisfying our needs and repurpose these resources towards something not apparently connected to the meeting of these needs. And so we get Suits' definition. Quote, X is playing if and only if X has made a temporary reallocation to autotelic activities of resources primarily committed to instrumental purposes. So we might take food, an essential instrumental resource for survival, and play with it. We're using it for some purpose on its own, not connected to our survival. We might even take time, an essential instrumental resource for any activity we want to engage in. And instead of using that time for those, those instrumental activities, we use it for some activity done for its own sake. We play. Now, as Suits spells out his definition more, there are two implications that seem to rise up. Now, the first is an implication that I think Suits would agree with, that play is radically non-instrumental, right? That's kind of what it means to be autotelic. If play serves some function or has a use for something beyond itself, then it's not really play. So in speaking of aesthetic or religious experiences that we regard as useful for making us better people, let's say, Suits says, quote, because of its usefulness for some further purpose, then it's not really autotelic behavior. And so it does not really qualify even as a candidate for the name play. So while Suits regards this sort of autotelicity this non-instrumentality as essential to play, it seems to have the unfortunate consequence of defining out of existence nearly all play. We have many motivations for play, and certainly adults regard play as useful for well-being, for health, and for other possible purposes. If so, then suits must regard nearly all adult play as not really play. A second uh, implication is one I don't think suits would agree with, but I do think is there. And this is that play seems to be always, or at least frequently, morally wrong. And this is because he defines play as necessarily in contrast to the use of our resources, including time, for the activities and ends necessary for life. Quote, the conditions must be such that the time used for such purposes is viewed in contrast to a situation in which the time ought to be used for an activity which has a higher claim upon it. So play is defined as always taking away from what we need to live, and so seems to almost always be inappropriate. There's always some situation to which we ought to be directing these resources. And so if we're playing, we're redirecting those resources which, uh, toward, toward some other goal when there's some higher claim upon it. And Suits might even have anticipated this idea a little bit. After all, he ends the paper with the line, playtime comes after we save civilization. Thank you for listening to Examine Sport. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all the shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. Please also consider rating the show on iTunes, liking it on YouTube, and sharing on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. You can email the show, sportsethicist, at gmail.com. 